Thanks for a great dinner. Uh, thanks for a beautiful time of worship. Um, I, I have a sort of serious talk here entitled How Much Faith Should Be Put in Science? Um, and uh, actually, Bill Boyce asked me also if I would share a little bit about my own faith journey. And so I thought I'd do that first as a kind of introduction uh, to the talk. There are some view graphs, but they're not terribly important just at the moment. And if they keep flashing yellow the way they have, <laughs> just try to ignore it. <laughs> um, I did not grow up in a Christian family. I, my parents were not Christians, uh, and we, as a family, I don't remember ever going to church except to weddings. Um, I, I, did, I was completely ignorant of Christianity because the, the <coughs> high school that I went to was next to Worcester Cathedral in England. You can tell I'm an Englishman from my accent, even though I've lived in America for 40 years or more now. Um, I don't seem to have lost my accent, at least from your point of view. I <laughs> it wasn't until I went to uh, Cambridge University as, a, as an undergraduate that I began to take Christianity seriously. It wasn't that I was ignorant about it. I, I sort of knew, thought I thought I knew what the great claims of Christianity were. I just didn't believe them. I didn't think that they were, I wasn't sort of very anti-religious, but I, but I just didn't, it just didn't seem to make sense to me. Until I um, met two people who became my close friends as undergraduates in Cambridge, and they were people whose intellect and whose wit and friendship that I, I valued greatly. And they were both Christians. Um, and so that, you know, naturally enough, made me begin to think about whether I'd been rather dismissive about Christianity uh, up until that time. In my second year at Cambridge, uh, they invited me to go to a series of lectures by a man called Michael Green, who was a well-known speaker at that time, which is a long time ago. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, much to, their, much to my friend's surprise, I said yes, and I went. And there were two things, really, um, in, in that series of lectures that struck me as totally novel that I'd never really thought about before as an unbeliever. And one was that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and, and hence for the truth of Christianity was actually rather good. I mean, historical evidence for the resurrection was pretty serious. I mean, not, maybe it was not knocked down, but it was actually pretty good. That's, well, that's the first thing. The second thing that struck me at that time uh, as a new idea that I never had thought about before was the notion that Christianity isn't so much about believing in some intellectual um, propositions, but it's actually a living relationship with Jesus Christ and, and through him with God the Father. And those two things were very new to me. And it was, in the, it was later on in the course of those lectures that I began to realize that I kind of did believe it. I kind of did believe in the resurrection, and I kind of did believe that there was something to this Christianity. Um, but I also re recognized that I would have to take a step of faith, uh, which was not just believing, but it was also a step of commitment. Um, if I was to go further in this respect, and by God's grace, I did that one uh, evening after one of the lectures uh, in my college room in King's College, Cambridge, the college that I, that I uh, was a part of at that time. Uh, and I have been a follower of Jesus ever since. And I did find a reality there. And, uh, and my understanding of the Christian faith grew 
together with my understanding of physics and mathematics, which is what I was studying, studying at Cambridge. And so those two things grew up together, in a certain sense, in my intellectual life. And, uh, and part of that growing up process was that I began to try to wrestle with the question of how, what is the relationship between science, the science that I was pursuing, physics, and, and the Christian faith, which was something that I believed was true, historically true, um, but, but of course was different in a certain sense from science. And uh, as the years went by and I was struggling with this and, and wrestling with it and developing ideas, I was on occasions asked to give talks to fellowship groups, maybe something like this, or, or in, in later times to other university groups. And I began to discover that people found something worthwhile in the things that I had worked through and, and began to um, say, yeah, this is good. And so over the years, I've given many scores of talks about the relationship between science and faith. And, and, uh, and one of the venues that I've most enjoyed and most benefited from is uh, something called the Veritas Forums, which you may have heard of. Um, and these are, these are opportunities for uh, Christian groups on campus to get together and put a big event together where we have a dialogue or maybe just, maybe just a lecture about some topic about the relationship between intellect and the Christian faith. And I've given many, many of these, and many of them have been videotaped. And I've, over the years, discovered that the most interesting time, certainly from my point of view, and I think from actually from the point of view of the audience, during those events, is not so much the lectures or the speaker, it's actually the questions. It's the questions from the audience. And certainly from my perspective as a speaker, those are the most interesting and, and meaningful and insightful things that, that come out of these meetings. And so um, the book that recently I published, which, which has been published by InterVarsity Press, is basically a book about all the questions that I've been asked at Veritas forums over 25 years um, of giving talks and having dialogues about this topic of the relationship between science and the Christian faith. There are over 200 questions. They're all grouped together, so it's not you know, just one question after another. <laughs> That'd be terrible. Um, so there is, there is a sort of theme to it. Um, but I haven't changed the questions. I didn't edit them. I didn't cherry-pick the ones I liked. I took them, all of them. Okay, so some of them are a bit prickly, um, and some of them are more encouraging, and some of them puzzles and genuine and genuine questions. And, and so what I want to do this evening is to um, pick on just one sort of subtopic. The title of the book is Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? An MIT professor answers questions on God and science. Um, it's not just about miracles, and in fact I'm going to give a talk that's more directly about miracles at Stonehill Church tomorrow evening. So I decided I would do I would pick some of the different questions out of this book to talk about uh, tonight. And these are really all focused on the topic of faith. Um, so if you like, um, this is a preview of the book, okay? And the other thing I want to say is that um, I'll try to leave enough time at the end so that if you have your own questions, you know, you can ask, you, you can ask them and I'll do my best to answer them as far as I know the answers. So please feel free. Um, okay, let's have the next slide. Thank you for thank you for the slide operator. This is this is just to prove to you that there are lots more topics <laughs> in the book, and so this is the table of contents, and it runs down. Um, and we are we are at the moment in chapters sort of three three to five maybe. 
okay, three, three and four, and maybe five. And there are other, there are other topics like, like the Bible and science and so on. Okay, let's have the next slide. Yeah. I can believe six impossible things before breakfast. That's what the White Queen announced through the looking glass said. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. That's what Mark Twain portrays his schoolboy as answering is what the definition of faith is. Um, Richard Dawkins offers this. Of course, dyed-in-the-wool faith heads are immune to arguments. Their resistance built up over years of childhood indoctrination. So these are caricatures of faith. Some of them are deliberate caricatures, like, like Lewis Carroll's, or, or to some extent like Mark Twain's. Okay? Some of them are not so deliberate caricatures, but they're still caricatures. Okay? So what, though, really is faith? And I'm going to challenge you today, not so much with an encouragement to practice faith. I want you to practice faith, and I, and I think we, we all need to discover. But I want you to think deeply and intellectually about what faith is and how that relates science and our Christianity. So what is faith? Faith, um, ha as a word, has several, several different meanings. They really can be grouped in three. It's, it's belief in propositions, it's confidence or trust in a person or thing, or it's loyalty to a person or thing. And in Christianity, all three meanings apply but actually, the emphasis is not so much on the first, believing in propositions. It's actually on the second two. It's, it's on trust and loyalty. But notice that faith isn't inherently religious. Okay? It can be perfectly secular. I mean, I had faith in the airplane that I flew down to Newark from Boston today. Um, I um, have faith in sense of trust in my wife. Um, and I try to act in faith towards her in the sense of loyalty. So these are all entirely secular meanings of the word faith. Okay. Now, um, we'll have the next slide. At the top of some of these slides, I'm, I'm writing in italics the literal question that I was asked live, you know, in a, in a Veritas forum. Here's, here's one of them. Isn't blind faith the problem and critical thinking the solution? Isn't faith a critical step to bridge a gap? And at that step, isn't critical thinking gone? Well, you know, secularists speak of there being a simple choice, that you can base your beliefs on faith, or you can base them on evidence. So they speak of faith-based and evidence-based beliefs, meaning very often beliefs without evidentiary justification, and beliefs with evidentiary justification. Well, obviously, if you have a choice, stark choice between those different types of things, it's surely preferable to go, to go for evidence. But the trouble with that is that it's a false choice. I mean, I accept that um, you can't prove the truth of Christianity by science, but that doesn't mean there's no evidence for it. Because science is not all the knowledge there is, and scientific evidence is not all the evidence there is. There are many important questions that science cannot resolve, and it's therefore completely unjustified uh, to suppose that faith, whether it's religious or not, always means belief in contradiction to the evidence or without evidence. Belief without scientific proof is not the same as belief without evidence. 
I have evidence that supports my belief that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate and rose from the dead on the third day. The historical evidence for the resurrection is actually stronger than for many events in the ancient world that are accepted as unproblematic or uncontroversial. I'm not saying that the resurrection is obviously true, although I believe the evidence is actually in its favor. But I am saying that there's serious evidence for it. And therefore, in, con- in contrast to this view which says there's you know, uh, a simple choice between faith and evidence-based um, actions, that you, you can't maintain that in respect of a question like the resurrection, or indeed perhaps most religious claims. Instead, what you have to do is you have to weigh the evidence um, that supports it. And actually, I think that that's an assessment that Christianity bears very well. If you understand that the type of evidence that it's reasonable to ask, which is mostly not scientific, because um, you know, Christian claims are mostly not scientific claims. The other topic here is critical thinking. Critical thinking, I take to refer to the attempt to evaluate questions objectively by recognizing my own and other people's predispositions, self-interests, and biases, and so forth. And then trying to set them aside or compensate for them in a kind of search for truth, recognizing our own predispositions and just searching regardless of that. So therefore, critical thinking is not the antithesis of faith. Faith, rightly understood, I believe, is the partner of critical thinking. Maybe even its result, not its enemy. There is, however, um, an attitude of sometimes of believism. That's a kind of attitude which says, well, I just believe it, or I just have faith. As if they were offering some kind of justification. I think that there is a sense in which that does abandon critical thinking, because um, basically all that's being offered is um, one's own preferences, one's own predispositions, if you like. And those predispositions were supposed to have been put aside in critical thinking. So it would then be fair, I think, to refer to that type of faith as a kind of maybe even a blind faith, or at least an unjustified faith. But Christianity and Christ don't call us to that sort of faith. They call us to enter into a faithful relationship with God. And I think that very often non-intellectual believers actually do have personal reasons uh, for their faith, which spring from that relationship that they have with God, their personal experience. They may be able to, may not be able to articulate the, that reasons or those reasons, but they're not actually blind in the way that um, people are often accused of exercising blind faith. I mean, if you think about it, if the heart of Christianity is a relationship, if you were asked to give a rationale for why somebody is your friend and you trust them, you too might find that difficult, okay? Um, particularly if you haven't thought deeply about what your relationship is about. 
So, um, that was that question. Here's another question. What's the role of faith in science? Faith in the comprehensibility of the universe obviously undergirds the whole of the scientific enterprise. I mean, the remarkable extent to which the human mind through logic and mathematics and so forth can comprehend the deep workings of nature continues to inspire wonder and questioning, even though it's now a familiar fact. Um, Eugene Wigner, a physicist, put it this, this way, the enormous usefulness of mathematics in the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious and there's no rational explanation for it. Or Albert Einstein put it more broadly like this, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. And the beginning of the scientific revolution in, in, in the 17th century was in fact mostly faith in human cognitive ability, which was largely inspired by religious beliefs that sustained the scientific enterprise. I mean, today, of course, we, we have several centuries of successful science kind of behind us that justifies that faith a posteriori. And so many people have cast away the theology that originally supported it. And yet, there still remains a strong element of unproven confidence and determination in the expectation that science can continue to master deeper and wider fields of natural phenomena. Um, if we go to the next slide, I want to, in a moment, I want to play just a clip about Lawrence Krauss. Hold your, hold your horses there for a moment. I just want to introduce um, I, Some years ago, I had a debate that was actually pub, uh, broadcast on PBS um, with Lawrence Krauss. There were actually two people on either side who were listed up there. And, uh, and, and I was pointing out the fact that there, the scientists actually do act on faith in some respects. And, and this is his response. Now, let's see if we can play our clip. Thank you. In science, of course, and, and in life, we do, I agree, make decisions based on incomplete evidence. But the wonderful thing about science, the thing that makes science so much better than religion, is our faith is shakable. I'm proud of the fact that there's something I can believe with all my heart to be absolutely true, and the minute there's a bit of evidence that shows it isn't true, I throw it out like yesterday's newspaper. Okay. The minute there is any bit of evidence, I throw it out like an old newspaper. What do you think? Do you, do you think that's true? Think about it. Let's go to the next slide. Here's a counterexample. Uh, in, in 2011, September, some scientists in Italy announced that they had timed the flight of neutrinos from CERN, which is the big uh, collider in Switzerland to Italy, and they had they had got there faster than the speed of light. These weren't some crazy claims. These weren't some crazy non-scientists or or people uh, you know who didn't know what they were talking about who were making these claims. So did Lawrence Krauss immediately throw out relativity like yesterday's newspaper? Well, of course he didn't. Okay, nor nor did anybody else. Um, so. And the reason is, of course, that Einstein's theory of relativity is far more robust than the notion that, that, it's, that it's immediately falsifiable by the least bit of evidence. Okay. So, and, the, and so there is a sense in, what I want to try to illustrate is that there is a sense in which scientists have faith in their results, 
they, they, they know that behind them there is all kinds of verification that is far more robust than supposing that science immediately will change its mind if, if there is the slightest bit of evidence against it. So that what I want to get across to you, therefore, is yes, there is a difference between science and um, religious faith, but, but they're not so different as is often portrayed by the anti-theists of today. Okay, let's go on. Let's keep going. What about authority, though? Isn't there a difference between accepting expertise and bowing to authority? This strand of the discussion of faith involves a combination of belief in propositions and trust in persons. So it's often said that religious beliefs are based on faith in authority. People believe in Christianity, it's said, uh, because that's what they've been taught by their authority figures. And they believe because they trust those figures. And of course the authority of the Bible involves some of the same sort of combination. Um, we accept it as being reliable testimony and guide to life, partly because it's recognized by people we know and trust. So the question basically becomes, I want to take this question seriously, should we consider authority like this to be a reliable guide to truth? And the skeptic will often answer, no. We should trust science. Our confidence in natural science is not ultimately based on authority, but it's based on experiment and observation. And that's true. So shouldn't we throw off any reliance on authority or the opinions of others in developing our beliefs? Well, no, not really. Next click. Um, because it's impossible not to rely on authority to some extent even in science. It's certainly true that the religious belief of many people is founded on an acceptance of what they are taught by their religious authorities. That's true. But it's just as true that their scientific beliefs is an acceptance of the teachings of their scientific authorities. So does that mean that they should reject both religion and science? I mean, if authority is the problem with religion, why is it not the problem with science? If, um, from the viewpoint of the non-scientist, actually, there's really not a lot to choose between the two in respect of authority. In fact, for serious religious believers, it's likely that they're better educated about their religion than they are about science. In other words, their religious beliefs are, on the face of it, less dependent on external authority than it are their scientific beliefs. Well, okay, let's go on. Um, even if authority is important in science, and I've tried to show you that it is, isn't it better because, at least with a scientific belief, I can test it? Well, um, yes, it was uh, perhaps true once upon a time to say of scientific beliefs, I can test it. And arguably, it remains true in principle. In principle, yes, we can test any scientific claim. That's the nature of science. It depends on the reproducible behavior of the world, and so we can go back and we can repeat the experiments. That's true in principle, but it's not true in practice. I mean, Michael Faraday, in the middle of the 19th century, in his Victorian laboratory, yes, he could 
uh, reproduce almost immediately the, the phenomena of basic electricity that, he, that were reported by his colleagues elsewhere. But today, hardly any professional scientist is able to practice such immediate reproduction of results. Science is too expensive, too demanding, too specialized. And that situation poses actually a fairly substantial challenge uh, for the validation and communication of science, even to other scientists. So as a result, scientific journals today are full of incorrect results because of it. In biomedical research, the problem has reached quite scandalous levels. In one recent study of 67 biomedical um, bio um, papers, only a quarter of the results could be reproduced. And in another of 53 papers, even with the help of the original authors of the, of the papers, only 10% of the major findings could be reproduced. Now, I don't mean to run science down. I'm a scientist. I think it's really important, okay? But... I think you have to recognize that even if we do have much pride and self-congratulation in the peer review process of you know, journals and so forth, um, yet it's, um, it, it's not a perfect system. Actually, the, the peer review per, uh, uh, policy that we currently have for papers in sciences, uh, you know, where, where they go out to referees and, and the referees comment on them, try to decide whether they're right or not or worthy of publishing, it's relatively new, uh, at least in, in, in the formal sense. Albert Einstein, in 1936, when he submitted the journal to, uh, to the paper of the journal, the, the top physics journal in America, Physical Review, he was incensed that the editor had sent it, sent it out to someone else to review. He thought he'd made his papers were his papers, and he didn't want anyone else to read them. Of course, that's, it's different today. But that's an illustration that in 1936, peer review didn't exist. Science existed. So science and peer review aren't the same thing. And actually, peer review, this idea that we, we, we improve the quality of papers and of the journal overall by having experts look at our work, is under great pressure, partly because there's too much expected of it. The scientific journal review system doesn't guarantee truth. And the first thing a graduate student, or undergraduate for that matter, has to learn about journal articles is that being published doesn't make it correct. Let's have another question. Isn't there a difference between the unearned and unjustified authority of a religious charlatan and the earned authority of a scientist? Doesn't religion shield itself from accountability and thus derive unearned authority? Isn't that a recipe for dogmatism and closed-mindedness? You know, this is, there, there's some truth in this question, I think, hinting at. Because obviously there is a difference between the earned authority of an expert and the proclaimed authority of a charlatan. And maybe religion has more than its fair share of charlatans. Okay? Um, but actually, science also has charlatans. And um, so it's unjustifiable, really, to contrast the religious charlatan with the scientist of, un, un, of earned authority. I've got little patience with hacks or charlatans, whether they're religious or scientists. Um, and uh, scientific charlatans are just as likely to shield themselves from accountability, as this question points out that they do, um, as, as religious ones. So what happens is that the communities have mechanisms by which they try to enforce practices of honesty 
and openness, and peer review is one of those processes. But actually, the Christian church also has processes by which it seeks to maintain honest and beneficial behavior in its members, particularly in its leaders. Um, and so church discipline sometimes fails, but not because it has no processes that hold both charlatans and true leaders to account. So actually, really, it's, it's the case that thoughtful assessment of any topic, whether it's religious or scientific, requires a balancing of freedom of thought with appropriate recognition of authority. If a journal's submission in my field, I, re I referee far more papers than I ought to, but I, I do it if, if a journal sub uh, submission in my field of plasma physics starts with an assertion that Maxwell's equations, which, is, which are what govern electromagnetism, are incorrect, then I don't waste much time on that paper. Okay? Um, and that's because those equations, Maxwell's equations, are authoritative. They are the foundation of an enormous web of explanation over, over many decades and hundreds of years, century and a half. And so um, it would take an intellectual earthquake to overthrow them uh, within the discipline. And I don't think it's very different to say that if someone offers a religious assertion that Jesus was nothing but a charismatic preacher, then I don't waste much time before dismissing that. The deity of Christ should not be considered suspect just because it's an authoritative teaching of the church any more than Maxwell's equations should be considered suspect because they're an authoritative teaching of physics. In both cases, there's this web of explanation that supports them both. Over two millennia of Christian thought lie behind the Christian theology that we have today. And it would take an intellectual earthquake within the church to, to overthrow so foundational an aspect of it. So science depends on a complicated mixture of non-scientific skills, logic, good judgment, expert opinion, accepted authority and questioned authority, and so does theology. So I want to end up, um, I think we've got one more, uh, on the topic of what does it mean to live by faith. And then uh, please do feel free to ask, ask your own questions on this or any other topics that come to mind. You know, we humans all the time are obliged to make decisions based on minimal evidence. Because really, there's no time for careful weighing of evidence for every decision in the hustle and bustle of daily life. Even in the major decisions, when we take time to think deeply about things like what job should we take, or what should be our college major, or who we should marry, you know, there's insufficient evidence to make a totally rational decision. I'm not saying that we should ignore what we know from the, from the evidence. Of course not. But eventually, we have to move forward one way or the other um, without sufficient evidence to justify all of our decisions. And um, people who do so with determination 
um, and commitment, even in the face of uncertainty, they are often called men and women of action. They act decisively in ways that are consistent with their underlying beliefs, commitments, and principles with what they do know, even in situations where no one knows what the right answer really is. And that's, I would argue, an important practice of faith. And I would also argue that religious faith, at its best, is the same principle applied to matters of the spirit. So let us exercise that sort of faith. Thank you very much. I'm going to stop there.